Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks again for joining us for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And the question I'm going to pose today is this. Is it time to bring back chivalry? Steve, what say you? I say that there is indeed a need to bring back our chivalry. Uh, Really popular in our culture today is this conflict between femininity and masculinity. And there seems to be, in the idea of chivalry, a healthy merge of these two ideas of the of the knight who has both a romantic love interest that causes him to behave and to show manners in a certain way, but also an impulse to defend and to attack enemies of that bride so that he might be both soldier and a husband. I think in our culture, we find ourselves either too aggressive, uh, too soldierly, uh, or we find ourselves too too matronly, too much of a of a doormat, finding ourselves and our identity in something feminine rather than masculine. And so for us, we're going to talk about chivalry, but the resurrection or the, the bringing back of chivalry has more to do with bringing back a true vision of what mankind was meant to be. All right. So you use the word manners and manners is kind of like the word temperature. Everybody has a temperature everybody has some form of manners. The question is, is it good or bad? So bring the idea of manners and chivalry and exactly where do they intersect? Well, everybody knows that chivalric code means like this idea that a knight behaves a certain way around a battle. He has a certain way he has trained his disciplines. In fact, the idea of chivalry comes from this ancient practice that predates Christianity, that soldiers would have a certain code of going into battle, how they would handle dead bodies, how they would handle hand-to-hand combat, what they would wear, what flags they would, they would hoist, and how they would respond to enemies' insults and how they'd respond to enemies' injury. Now, the strange thing is that our idea of, of moral warfare or our idea of a, of a Christian battle where people can surrender, or when people can agree to go in battle or sign surrender treaties. Uh, those are all Christian ideas of chivalry. Uh, prior to the advent of Christendom, chivalry was just an instruction manual of how to rape and pillage. In fact, all the way throughout created history, the idea of warfare is often, or I should say, the idea of total warfare is associated with the destruction of personal property and of violating women. So manners enters this equation as this medieval code becomes part of not just Christian society, but through the influence or introduction of Christian crusaders or of Christian cultures into other parts of the world, the effect that Christian ideas, those theological ideas you have in your head, have on how you behave. And so manners is a reflection of what you believe. So Dr. Rushduni uh, talks about the manner of pulling out a chair for a woman. And I'll let you explain that one in a bit. But these all point to the idea that chivalry and Christian manners point to an ideal state of how what we believe affects how we act. So 
it, it sounds like from what you're saying that it was an understood reality that men and women were different, called to different things, whereas a man would be called to protect and defend. It was not a common practice to view women as going into combat, as women being police officers, because there was this view of the family that acknowledged the fact that a woman's role, and I know a lot of people will say, oh, that's just so old fashioned, but a woman's role was to rear her children. So she was preparing the next generation in a lot of ways to act in a civil, orderly, and Christian manner. And all anybody has to do today is take a look at the tenor of the lack of good manners on social media, or just watch how people decide they protest things they don't like. We're far removed from chivalry and manners when people are just bent on destruction. Right, and there's a, a natural element to uh, human chivalry or to the manliness or the, the feminine identity to manners. There is a sense in which the ancient world uh, knew nothing of entitlement or privilege. The ancient world knew nothing of natural rights or constitutional rights. It was dog-eat-dog -dog world. And it is not until the advent of Christendom that the utility of man versus woman becomes codified into the structures provided by the church. See, prior to Christ, uh, women naturally, based on their stature, based on their subjection by pagan cultures, were treated as inferior. Every other culture outside of Judaism and Christianity viewed women as inferior creatures, right? Almost like property. They couldn't pass on inheritance. They couldn't receive birthrights. All these things that come into play throughout the scripture were denied to women based on some natural uh, differences. Now, of course, St. Paul speaks to these natural differences that women are, of course, called the weaker vessel. But by nature, we see that. We see that today in even professional sports. The women can't run quite as fast as the fastest men, and they can't lift as heavy as the strongest men, and they can't grow muscles quite as big as the strongest men. These natural realities were reflected in the hierarchy or the chain of being in the ancient world. But with the advent of Christendom came a chivalric code that began to protect the weaker people by institutions like the church or marriage or the temple. All of these institutions ordained by God were meant to provide equal access to the kingdom or equal access to God through the mechanisms or through the intercessory actions of advocates. So fathers advocated for protecting their daughters or their wives. And so those who were considered weaker were brought up through manners and protected under God's economy. And it's very interesting when you think about it because things have changed so much that there, I remember growing up at first having this idea that if somebody pulled out a chair for you, which you said I would explain, has to do with the fact that in certain situations, the chairs were too heavy and women had big skirts. And so it was a custom to pull out a chair and help her get seated. And it was a courtesy. It was good manners. Well, nowadays, you can have some women, if a man opens the door and lets them go in first or offers a seat, women will go, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Why? Don't you think I'm as good as you are? 
and they've totally missed the point that it's a sign of respect and respecting the fact that, yes, they could overpower this woman, but good manners and good training says they won't do so. That's right. And I think that the other part of chivalry is it recognized or it romanticized the idea that manners pointed to a, another reality. You know, husbands do not have to uh, be kind and respectful towards somebody who's less powerful than them. Yet Christ commands husbands to love their wives, to serve their wives. He commands a sense of chivalry because he is pointing to a, a reality that marriage creates. Instead of man being one type of creature and woman being another type of creature, the gospel puts them as like two halves of one human creature. And chivalry or good manners allows us to see that the two together make something that's more powerful. And so this deference or service of each other actually goes to make that one united whole more powerful. Uh, a married couple, husband and wife, that are showing chivalrous actions to one another, especially the stronger to the weaker, is a picture of what God does for us. And it allows us to understand how the kingdom moves forward. Us working with God, allowing the kingdom to move through us, allows us to do much more than we could have ever done on our own. In the same way, a wife working with her husband or a husband working with his wife allows the kingdom to do infinitely more than they would be able to do on their own. It complements their weaknesses, allows them to see their shortcomings. Uh, that one's pretty evident in the lives of every husband. And, but it allows a team to become truly human. And I think that's really what chivalry is trying to do, to find the reflection of, of God's image there in the man and the woman. And one of the sad things is people are so ill-informed historically. And so because of that, they rely on the 20th century phenomenon of movies and television. We have to realize that in the history of mankind, that this is a rather new development, being able to see talking pictures. And what happens is, because visuals play such an important role in how people process things, what people tend to experience through their sight oftentimes dictates lots of perceptions and understandings and somebody else is feeding them what it is they want to see as opposed to if you're reading a book you would imagine things and get your own internal visuals but what a lot of the 20th century filmmaking was all about was basically trying to challenge the christian view of men and women and how they related to each other and sometimes when I'm watching early film, I'm surprised at seeing the strain of feminism, saying, wait, 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 that was the 1930s. Why were they talking about that then? And so progressively speaking, we have seen the God-given roles for men and women, both important but different, diminished to the point now we have to argue whether or not men who are confused as to their gender should be able to compete with women in sports, right? So we've lost this differentiation. And as soon as you lose the differentiation, then marriage doesn't mean the same thing. Caring for the weaker vessel doesn't mean the same thing. It's so bad now 
that we have a prevailing media presence that won't talk about women being able to get pregnant. They talk about men who can get pregnant because you see there's some people who were born women who now think of themselves as men. And so we're going to say men can get pregnant. It may seem like, tell me if you think it's a stretch, but when we've lost this distinction and this good manners and this idea of chivalry and protecting the family, it's like the dike breaks and now we're flooded. That's right. And I think the dike has been gradually broken for decades or maybe even centuries to try to reimagine what these standards are. You know, you talk about the 1940s or even the 1930s. The one that comes to my mind when you started talking about comparing male and female competition or latent feminism is, you know, 1946, that's uh, Irving Berlin's uh, Anna Get Your Gun, right? This is anything you can do, I can do better. That's supposedly happening before the, the perfect 1950s Leave it to Beaver culture. And so even there 70, 80 years ago, these ideas were being espoused that there was some kind of conflict rather than complement between male and female, that rather than working together for some greater purpose, right, where St. Paul describes the two of them working, a woman serving her head, working towards a, a purpose where they're honoring the Lord by serving together, they're somehow naturally competitive with each other. And I think you're right in pointing out that there's a historical just misunderstanding. And when we mention the word chivalry and we talk about knights and, and whatnot, immediately most publicly school, public school educated kids are going to go back to the, what they describe as the dark ages, right? The time where they, the knights are leading crusades. It's the time when popes are running countries and we naturally have this temptation to believe that the values of that period, whether they're chivalry or not, must be antiquated and wrong because they're from the Dark Ages. It's only after the medieval period is over, when the Renaissance comes and, and true enlightenment enters into the world that we have the Western culture we come to, to know and to love. And so I think part of the hatred for Christian ideas of manners or Christian idea of roles is that those are, as you point out, connected to a Christian view of history. Why does it make sense for male and female to behave in a certain way? Because these are the ways and forms prescribed not only by nature, one person has a womb, one person doesn't, but they're how to describe human history. It's never been another way. The folks who pretend to be females today have never in history been allowed to behave that way and survive. Right. And you talked about, you know, the Leave it to Beaver era, the 1950s. And I believe that was intentional caricatures to push women to the point of now that, you know, the war was over and technology was booming and there were plenty of things that now conveniences that not everybody had with, you know, refrigerators or ovens or dishwashers or even washing machines. Because I can remember my grandparents talking about how they still appreciated all these things because they didn't have them but 20 years prior. And so instead of valuing the extra time to invest in helping her family in the kind of woman that's described in Proverbs 31, the way the media portrayed women 
was as useless, didn't have much to do. What do you do after you clean your house? You know, you could be doing so much more. And now, fast forward the clock and let's see the result of those children who grew up to be people who didn't have discipline, who didn't understand that no was no when they were told no. And now we have a process where the way you make your point is to be rude, to be belligerent, and to destroy things you disagree with. What most people don't realize is a lack of manners is part and parcel of a revolutionary spirit. Yes, that's the the key there, the revolutionary spirit, because I think intrinsic in all of this media is a concept that the the world gets better than the church. And most Christians recognize that there is strength in media, that the values that come through the television screen uh, are passed on to children. But I don't think they recognize that there is a strategy by the world to make things happen downstream, right? So if, if culture is downstream from religion, if what we believe shows up in our culture 10, 15, 20 years from, the, from now, what we see on television is the result of what was taught in pulpits 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so when we see the, the motifs like the, the lazy husband in movies and media from the last 10 years, that's the result of men not being active or leaders in their church a generation ago. And so today, I think if we look at media and we wanted to work backwards in chivalry, I think the place where you can recognize where the church has failed is where the church is most lampooned in media today. So our views of marriage, our views of sexuality, our views of children and courtship, those things that the world most enjoy mocking are those things that we have successfully given up uh, and not to our gain in the last generation. And so what we need now is a kind of a resurrection, a bringing back of chivalry in Christian ethics. We need folks to go back to the type of man or the type of woman that C.S. Lewis describes in his definition of chivalry, which he ties to uh, the idea of the medieval knight and the idea of the feudal system. The thing about the feudal system, which again, if you don't know history or you've only been spoon-fed somebody else's pre-digested view, makes it out that the feudal system was an awful system. Well, the feudal system was about as decentralized as you could get in as much as people cared for the lord of a manor would care for the people who worked for him or on his property. But by definition, he would be their protector. So we have moved so far away from that that instead of having the general or the president or the king, like we see in scripture, go out and fight battles, we now have people who hold positions of authority who send other people out and other people have to be brave but they don't have to be brave because they're never involved in that kind of circumstance. That's right. And, and Dr. Rushdurney talks a lot about the feudal system and its relationship to America. The, the constitutional system that was envisioned by the founders is by every definition, a codification of the European feudal system. And he makes the point that anywhere you expect liberty to grow, there's this idea of decentralization, but it's always in the sense of, not revolution, but of feudalism, of establishing 
the idea of lordship, of private property, of obedience to a common moral code, a type of chivalry. And so reconstruction, theonomy, Christian ethics, all of them share this common vision that a culture that is wholly Christian and full of liberty has to also share a common moral philosophy. A people who expect good things to come for their children also have to have a common law. Now, there's a problem here, though, because the techniques or the tactics to get to a, a Christian culture seem to vary between two extremes. And the two extremes are the wolf and the sheep, uh, is, as C.S. Lewis describes, that some men become so passive or so meek or so humble that they're really no good. The world ha- takes a doormat over them. And that's what we see as the dominant philosophy in the church today, whether it's uh, Joel Osteen or, or Steve Furtick, these guys who are so kind that the world has no respect for their you know, lukewarm, evangelical type of philosophy. Uh, but then there are the other folks, and we find a lot of those in our camp, especially among us Reformed folks, who are so eager to put forth our flaming tongue of theological acumen. Right? We want to tear off the head of all of those infidels who refuse to believe the five points there established at the, the Synod of Dort. And so Lewis describes that instead of embracing one of these two evils, whether being the, the wolf, the soldier who's only out there to, to rape and to pillage, to find conquest, or being the passive sheep, the person who stays at home, who refuses to take any responsibility, that the chivalrous man is personified in the very phrase that we have come to associate with the Middle Ages, and that is the knight in shining armor. Because he says that the knight in shining armor is the composite of two things. Iron, you know, this is the armor, and blood, the, the actual knight in the armor. And he says that the, the picture we get in the Middle Ages is that everybody wanted to be and model their life after Christ, who was also a man of iron and blood. He was the, the man of iron from Psalm 2, who has this rod of iron who whips the nations into Uh, who are conspiring against him into their rightful obedience, but he's also the man of blood. He's the man who's willing to be the sacrifice, who's willing to take the punishment, who's willing to be the sacrifice, but never do those two things stand in contrast to each other. They're always complementing each other. His ascent up to Calvary is a march of victory. And again, when he resurrects from the tomb, he comes out the victor over the grave. So the knight in shining army, the the chivalry of the Middle Ages was really the two persons in uh, the the two natures of Christ in one person put into a way that we could understand. How could we be meek, lowly, and humble like Christ, and then also be like Christ, the, the victorious conqueror who comes out of the grave to take his kingdom captive and to bind Satan in chains? Well, you're going to be a knight, a man of flesh and blood and shining armor, putting on the whole armor of God and balancing those two things gave birth to the medieval chivalric codes. Which means that you have to be well-versed and well-practiced in the law word of God, knowing when is it a correct procedure to use diplomacy to be the ambassador for Christ And when is the correct procedure to be the soldier for Christ? But if you're making it up as you go along, or 
if you're relying on stereotypical bad history, then you're not even going to understand the correct way to live and act, but you're going to base it on the majority of opinion. And if we divorce manners from our responsibility to be obedient to God's law, then we're really going to be confused. Yes. And really, the Christians have been trying to put forward an ideal man for much of our history through our kind of culture and through our literature, much of what we understand as the Arthurian legend, the, the idea of King Arthur and the Round Table and Guinevere and Lancelot was us attempting to culturally reflect what we believe Christ came to establish in the hearts of every man. Every man was to be a type of, of King Arthur. Every man was supposed to represent some noble cause to rescue this realm, this, this piece of earth for a greater kingdom. And so inside of even those, those legends are this natural human identity that obviously balances manners, but also with a, a demand to call to something bigger. And I think that if we look at those legends, if we look at the, the chivalry, the codes of knights, if we look at what they were expecting culture to become, we can see that as we move away from chivalry, as our culture continually blends the line between male and female, between responsibility and purpose, uh, between passivity and entitlement, the further we get away from the, the King Arthur archetype that was given to our forefathers, the further we'll get away from the blessings that come with that national identity. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the left or the modernist or the liberalist or the evolutionist likes to malign the dark ages and the feudal system as somehow barbaric. Yet it was those men and women who were striving to be like they were inside of the Arthurian legend that gave rise to not only uh, an idea of romantic love and marriage, of wanting to come back from battle to be with their wife, but also gave rise to the university, gave rise to the hospital, gave rise to established culture and citadels in a time when barbarians had no motivation to be established city dwellers. Uh, C.S. Lewis makes this point on his paper on chivalry. He says, what motivation does the barbarian have for stopping his raping and plundering? Think about all the great barbarous non-Christian cultures over the last 2,000 years, whether it's uh, Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or even Muhammad. When they invaded, did they behave with chivalry? Did they consider, oh, these women are, are virgins, so we're going to protect them or that this is the food or the water that these people depend on. No, they completely destroyed everything they came into contact with. Yet Christian idea of crusade or Christian idea of high culture was that everywhere we went, we gave them the blessings of liberty through the freedom given to the gospels, king, the kingdom of the gospel. And so deep inside our cultural identity with the idea of something as simple as pulling out a chair is this great vision that early Christians had that for us to be co-heirs of the kingdom of God meant for us to establish little kingdoms all throughout the world where the Arthurian legend could come to life. And so I, I think this goes back to, and, and I, I say it almost every time we have one of these discussions, it goes back to education 
that has a biblical world and life view as an umbrella over it. Because if you rely on secular history, the history that most people got if they went to public school or even private school, depending on the worldview of the school, it's this idea of we don't want to go back to the dark ages, but they weren't dark ages. They were the Christian ages. And it goes back to the idea of who writes the history books. Just because it's in a history book doesn't make it true. And if you don't evaluate a history book from a perspective of how does this line up with scripture, you're going to end up with very different things. So there was a time, for example, let's just take the Crusades since you mentioned them, that the Crusades would have been taught in a positive light, where Christopher Columbus was taught in a positive light. Well, with the modern tenor, with people forcing ideas and revisionist history, the Crusades are bad, Christopher Columbus is bad. Right, down to our language. The, the Campus Crusades for Christ took the crusade out of the name and just go by crew now because it's so controversial to use the phrase crusade. But for, a million, <laughs> for millions of people for uh, a thousand years, the crusades represented something completely different. The Crusades were the Christian response to paganism, to uncivilized slave cultures invading Western culture. Christianity had protected men, women, and children with the university and the hospital, protected them with Christian law and order. And here the Crusades were meant to protect that legacy against those who were racist, who were slave owners, those who had no technology, no health care, no medicine, from invading and destroying them and their families. Yet today, the Crusades are seen as some kind of cultural faux pas that we should apologize for, when in fact, the success of the Crusades guaranteed that what we have today exists uh, as far as technology or science or health care. We would be still stuck in you know, mud pits and, and dark, unlit houses. There'd be no electricity, technology, internet that we come to enjoy and love and trust were it not for the Crusades forming that line, protecting culture against barbarism. And the same can be said for the modern American liberal education system on slavery. The whole concept that American slavery was the worst slavery there ever was sort of ignores the fact, and most people might not even know it, that around the world today, there is slavery and slavery much worse than American slavery was. And I'm not saying it should be defended in the sense that anybody who speaks against the fact that Americans and the South owned slaves. If you look at it from the point of view that people oftentimes aren't consistent with their profession of faith, and then they inherit things that they don't know what to do with. A great example would be your tax dollars and my tax dollars go ahead and fund abortion. So 500 years from now, somebody could look at me and said, I can't believe your, look at one of my descendants, I can't believe your ancestor was in favor of abortion. After all, her tax dollars went to abortion. That wouldn't necessarily be an accurate depiction of me, 
but it could be said that way. So now we have this sweeping thing that anybody who lived below a certain geographical line in our country hated black people, which is not true. And the most extreme cases of uh, taking advantage of people were the norm. But how many people are willing to say as unideal and unscriptural as it was, and it was because you weren't supposed to keep a slave forever. How many people now who are Christian, who are, you know, who are participants in black churches would never have gotten that if their ancestors hadn't come here to a country that was Christian. So we make the mistake of everything has to be just one way or the other. And we lose the nuance that says that as people become more consistent in their faith and that you have agreement that we should always be leading more and more sanctified lives, that of course we would improve. But to just write everything off and say that the country was terrible and that everything that was done was wrong, really the attack is more than on America the attack is on the Christian principles that America was founded on. Right. Well, and you talk about different points of history. And when we talk about chivalry, it's very easy to confuse our thoughts and think maybe we should have been born at a different time. Or perhaps you might think if, if only we lived during the, the golden period of the high Middle Ages where the Renaissance ideas were just accepted of true, good, and beautiful, right? I think that's also a misguided sense because what the what the Middle Ages gave us was not perfection. It's not like we're some antiquarians who are saying, look how well behaved the knights were. Let's all behave like them. But rather they had in their mind a sense of a vision and goal for the future. And I think that's what we want to bring back in terms of chivalry. You see, for the for the medieval, it wasn't so much that they had their correct code of ethics. It's not that they put their fork on the right side of their plate. It's not that they, women put their feet on the right side of the horse when they rode it with a saddle. It's not those particulars that made the medieval period special. What made the medieval period special is that they took the idea of a Christian man so seriously that every man, whether he was uh, a great warrior or some mundane person, had this call towards chivalry. That no matter if you were a passive person who's actively not involved in the world, that you, even you, the lowliest of men, have this call towards chivalry. And that there's, instead of choosing between I'm going to be a humble man or a, or a man of valor, whether I'm going to be a brave man or a man of, of uh, forbearance, whether I'm going to be a person who's soft or going to be a stout, brave knight, the medieval period said that those two extremes are not opposed to each other. And they also refuse to do what our modern culture likes to do and kind of uh, medium them out, right? To say, well, we're gonna be a little bit uh, edgy on this issue and a little bit soft on this. And they didn't allow that kind of compromise to enter them. They said, a man has to be both of these things. The, the idea of chivalry is that you are a humble soldier. You are a man who recognizes that you serve a kingdom greater than you. The idea was that naturally, the idea of being humble and the idea of being a warrior never come together outside of Christianity. But because we're modeling ourselves after Christ, 
who is those two things. He is humble and forbearing. He is a great warrior with his bow set in the sky. Because he's those two things together, every single man, every single woman recognized that there was a arc to their life, that just like uh, the Knights of the Round Table, they were striving after something like a holy grail in their life, that there was something in this world that could promise them the gifts of long life and good health. And ultimately for us as good reconstructionists, we recognize that obedience to God's code of conduct, to his moral law, is what gives us the benefits of the Holy Grail, uh, to speak, you know, uh, literarily. Right. And I think what a lot of women miss is that part and parcel of what produced that chivalrous night were mothers and wives. So the mother taught her sons and her daughters, but she taught her sons how to be men worthy of good women. And they, she taught her daughters how to be women who could help men reach their potential. And so it, it sort of posited this idea that people would work together so that a family, a new family that would form would be strong as opposed to these competing interests that say, well, you know, we should be totally equal. Well, you'll never be totally equal. Equality is a mathematical term. It's not really a term that really reflects individual people. Even identical twins are not equal. There might be some physical differences. There might be some intellectual capability differences. What the Declaration of Independence says is that men should have equal opportunity, not that they'll have equal outcomes. And it's well documented societally today that when you don't have two parents who are raising children together, you have a very much of a disparity of outcomes, that people actually do worse when there isn't a father being a father and a mother being a mother. And this is notwithstanding that sometimes in God's economy that a parent dies before his children are raised or, you know, a woman dies. But the point is what it should be is what produces the best outcome. And then you don't have spoiled brats as children who grow up to be spoiled brats as adults. Yes. Well, and I think really you're speaking to uh, Christ establishing his kingdom through relationships. Part of what is really troubling about the sociological conversation we have today about male versus female or anti-family or all of these different things that are pre presented is they view the state or the government or the world as some kind of institution that gives us power or authority or purpose. And none of those things are true. What the medieval period really gave us was a sense that our movement in terms of the kingdom of God happens through relationships. Uh, the, the noble knight goes off to fight on behalf of his Lord and comes back to receive the, you know, the gift and the knighting, to receive the, the benefits of his hard work so that he might raise a mighty family and pass that on to, as an inheritance. There was never a sense the knight was doing it because he might get a spotlight on CNN or the knight was doing it because he might get a government post. It was always for the sense that there is something relationally inside the kingdom that we need. And 
the further we get away from the basic institution of the kingdom as the family, the further we get away from the blessings of that institution. All right. You look back in scripture, um, depending on how you view the stories, when a king promised his faithful warriors, his faithful knights, that's not the term used in scripture, the reward of his daughter, he wasn't giving her as just a piece of property like a horse or a cow. What he was saying is, my daughter is so precious that somebody who is brave and will carry out the work that God endeavors for him to do is worthy of my daughter. So it was anything other than a denigration of women. It was elevating women to say, the best warrior, the most faithful soldier, the, most per- the person who was most trustworthy would be the one the king would want for his yep. daughter. And that's exactly how the story of the knight gets mixed in with the story of St. George and the dragon, right? So St. George and the dragon, the knight goes, kills the dragon, gets the bride. But that's exactly the story of the gospel, right? The, the bride of Christ is the church. Satan is the dragon. Christ goes as the noble knight riding forth, a knight in shining armor, slays the dragon. And as his reward, he gets the most precious, spotless, perfect bride And so that is really the picture we're given throughout scripture that Western culture has kept as central, that the family is more than just an an organism that allows us to procreate, but rather it is the means by which the kingdom expands and grows and blesses us. And we see it all throughout literature. Unfortunately, people do not realize how influenced they have been by enlightenment thinking and evolutionary thinking that they don't think in biblical categories. And I remember, of all people, Dr. Rush Dooney used to say, I remember he graduated from UC Berkeley, well-known university on the West Coast. He said he had to unlearn what he learned and imply a biblical template so that he really could understand history, science. And that's why he was so prolific in so many different areas, because he endeavored to put on the glasses of scripture that he liked to talk about in order to view even his own education. And I dare say a lot of our listeners should do likewise. Amen. One thing that came to mind when you talked about relationships and, and how people interact with each other There's a story about in the medieval marketplace when people would go to market where a lot of business was conducted. And if there were two people that had been at odds with each other or were somehow known as people who didn't get along, it was required, apparently, that they would walk arm in arm around the marketplace and everybody would see that they were willing to act civilly towards each other. If we have disagreements with people, especially in the body of Christ, rather than resorting to the world's ways of dealing with disagreements and and attacking the person and making fun of that person and just not being edifying, that we exercise good manners so that we don't fall into a revolutionary spirit when what we should be doing is promulgating the idea of regeneration not revolution or revolutionary ideas. Right. And we see that in our, in our literature today too. I, I think of 
in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Lewis talks about how the High King Peter behaves. There's this famous scene where Peter is about to duel. Uh, Miraz. Miraz is this battle-hardened, sword-drawn, going to beat Peter. And Peter's this young, and in the story, he's portrayed as not having much a chance against Miraz. And as they begin to duel, there's a scene that Lewis describes where Miraz loses his footing. And at that moment, Peter has to decide if he's going to take advantage of having this, this tactical advantage. The High King Peter, being a man of dignity, allows Miraz to get his footing back. And I think that type of thing is exactly what chivalry is about. It's about if we're going to win, we have to win on God's terms, according to God's rules. If Peter allows Miraz's misstep, his misfortune, his the wrong word he said, the flub he makes, the mistake he makes, and then chops off his head at that exact moment, there's really no honor in that. And so Christians, as we go about debating with the world, we have to be a man of iron and a man of flesh, recognizing that every bit of our valor must be tempered by the humility of Christ. That makes me think of the story of David in the cave when he could have taken Saul out and uh, he, was, he was sort of reproved by his men, like, you had him, you had him, you could have done it. And David said, no, that wouldn't be the way to do this. And so it's very much like, I, I guess maybe Lewis was thinking about David and Saul when he wrote about Peter and Miraz. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple of stories like that in the Arthurian legends as well of men showing grace towards other men because the true honor is winning on God's terms. It's submitting yourself to the greater law. And so we do that because we're not afraid that if we don't get some special advantage, we'll lose. We don't need to trick people into believing the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power. And so if we go about doing it in God's ways, we should expect God to be behind the results. Exactly. Well, I hope we've given our listeners something to think about. A lot of times during these conversations, you give me things to think about. So I'm hoping they have the same benefit. Any sort of recommendation on things people might read that would give them a greater insight into all of this? Certainly. As I've quoted a couple of times, Lewis wrote a, a pamphlet called On Chivalry, which is only a couple of pages long, which is worth reading. Um, and then to understand really the idea of the medieval mindset, how the creeds of the early church created the medieval mind uh, until it was tainted by scholasticism and rationalism of the Enlightenment, uh, Foundations of Social Order talks about how the great biblical ideas, when applied to life, created cultures that were worth emulating. Thanks for joining us, and I appreciate all those comments we've been getting saying how you listen to the podcast and you, you like them. And for those who even have sent in some suggestions, we always appreciate it. If you want to reach us, you can so at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.